everyone, and welcome to the next episode of Transperfect Life Science Talk. I'm Mark Wade. Today, I'm joined with Bill Byman, uh, who is VP of Product Intelligence and Positioning at Signet Health. Welcome, Bill. Yeah, great to be here, Mark. Good to see you again. Now, Bill and I know each other a long time. Bill had got his PhD from Strathclyde and is in Nottingham undergrad. So we know each other a long time. And specifically today, I want to talk about oncology and capturing data in that patient cohort. So what is the historic experience? Of capturing patients from data from those type of patients. Yeah, so I think I think if we kind of look at how we've done things traditionally and probably how we're still doing things mainly now, that there's a few things. I think one is that we tend to, you know, we use various quality of life instruments to measure, you know, things like physical function and other aspects of quality of life, and we usually do these when patients come in for a visit just before they get the next cycle of treatment. So. Mm -hmm. It's usually site-based administration. They'll sit down, complete their questionnaires. They'll either do it on paper or they'll do it electronically on a tablet. And, you know, there's, there's a question mark really over whether that's really the right time to be doing this. You know, uh, this is when patients are feeling well enough to get the next cycle of treatment. So you're asking them stuff about the effects of treatment and the effect, you know, the toxic effects that they've been suffering, but they're actually at this point in time, they're feeling better than they, they have done for the last few yeah. weeks. It's not necessarily the optimal time to do it. So I think that's one interesting thing about why we do, you know, how we do things now. And if we think about why that's a problem, when we think about recall, Mark, you know, we think about, you know, when is it, when's the right time to be asking patients a question about, you know, how they've been feeling over the last few days or week or, or whatever. And there's two sort of elements of bias that can creep in when we think about recall. One is, you know, can I actually physically remember something? You ask me what I ate um, this time last week. I can't remember that. Uh, I'm not, I'm never going to remember that. Ask me what I ate yesterday. Yes, I'll tell you that. Mm. Um, so that's kind of one aspect, just not being able to remember that's probably less relevant here, but the one that's possibly more relevant is what we call response shift. And that's that's a patient, because their condition has changed, because they're actually feeling better, does it colour the way that they perceive that they felt you know, three weeks ago? And, and we call that response shift. And that's a bias that we're kind of quite concerned about when we're just measuring at these points when actually is the time when the patient's feeling at their best. Do you remember years ago, we used to talk about the, the parking lot syndrome? And in yes. many ways, it is like that. With this revisionist history, um, uh, here, this, the, the disease state is actually colouring their, their, their recall. But, you know, it's yes. the exact same thing, I think. Can I unpack that slightly? Because when you look about the instruments, when you talk about the instruments that we use, how specialised are they? I mean, are they designed for purpose? I think there's been some good experience with some of the instruments. And I think this perhaps leads us into understanding how they're used and what they're used for in, in, in regulating yeah. decision-making, actually. And, and, you know, if we think about, you know, Ari Nanasak has published a couple of papers, two or three papers, where he's done a review of oncology drug approvals and, and he's looked at the labelling claims that those drugs have put out on their labels and seen how many of those have got ones based on COA data. And... You know, it's not a great picture, and, and particularly for the US approvals, it's not a great picture. So I think in 2010 to 2014, there were three out of 40 drugs that got approved by FDA for oncology that actually had PRO data in the label claims. And then he looked again, 2012 to 20, 2016, um, no, no drugs at all. 
uh, out of 45 approvals. Whereas on, on the European side, it's a little bit of a better picture. It's about half half of you know 21 out of 45 approvals in that same time frame had label claims based on PRO data. I think that starts to illustrate you know some of the concerns that FDA have around how good these instruments are and how able they are to measure the things that FDA are specifically interested in when they want to think about PRO related labeling. That's a good point. And the, the, the FDA draft guidance, uh, I, I believe you published a, a paper on this, but the FDA draft guidance, does that does that go a long way to speak to this? It, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's kind of, I mean, this has been bubbling on for quite a long time. And so, but the publication of this guidance, or at least the draft guidance, is really quite significant. And yeah, I, I, I published a kind of a, a summary of what it means for us uh, as a little white paper that uh, Signal Health published recently. But but I think there are three things to that guidance. The, the first thing is around the specificity of the measures and making sure that they are able to measure specifically a number of different domains that FDA are interested in. Mm. The other aspects of the guidance are around the frequency of assessments. So what we talked about before, this idea of just before a cycle starts when the patient's feeling at their best, that isn't the right time to be answer, asking questions about you know, the toxic effects of the drugs, et cetera, et cetera. And, and so they've defined a more frequent approach to measuring certain domains like physical function or uh, symptomatic side effects. And they want to see those measured more frequently, not just at the clinic visits. And then the third part is the importance of collecting a reason for missing data. And they're very worried about you know, the, again, the, the bias that can be introduced by patients not, not completing assessments, and maybe they're not completing them because they're just physically not well enough to deal with that in an, an analysis. You know, you've got to make sure, well, actually, if I, if I just treat it as missing at random, I, I'm going to bias that estimate because actually they were feeling really sick at that point. So those are three things they've really focused on. And that specificity thing gets to the point that you were talking about, which is, you know, are the instruments fit for purpose at this point? And yeah. um, I think some of them are, but some of them aren't. I, I agree. There's a couple of things in there. I mean, the, the, the whole concept of a patient being too sick um, yeah. to, to complete these instruments, I think that's terribly important. And, and if they're doing it at home, and, and maybe the caregiver or the, the whoever is minding them or whatever, their partner, isn't able to help them, are they too sick to complete it? If they're not, well, well what do we do with the lack of data? The, the lack of data is just as useful as, as the data itself, isn't it, in many ways? Yeah, I mean, that, that can be quite informative, can't it? So I think, you know, I, I think that it, it starts to introduce a challenge. And, and one of the things that FDA have asked for is this more frequent measurement, but not for everything. So so thinking about, you know, the practicalities of a patient completing a, a QLQC30 and then, a you know, a disease-specific questionnaire on top of that, and then maybe an EQ5D, and doing all of that, you know, at home, in one sitting when they're not feeling well is certainly not very practical. But yeah. I don't think that's what they're asking for. You know, if you kind of look at what they're saying, they, they, they split down the, the areas that they're interested in into, into five different domains. So they've got disease-related symptoms, um, symptomatic AEs, an overall side effect impact measure, and then a measure of physical function and a measure of role function. And it's only a couple of those domains that they actually think you should be measuring every week, at least for the first few weeks of treatment, you know, maybe the first you know, two or three months. And that will be the adverse events and the physical function. Uh, the other aspects, which are more sort of generic 
role function, disease-related symptoms, health-related quality of life, they can be less frequent. And so I think what we're kind of getting towards is, is there a happy medium where... That's exactly what I'm going to say. Ask a, a few questions to cover these particular domains and be able to ask them more frequently because we're not overburdening. So hopefully we get to a point where we are collecting enough data and we're able to address you know, the things that the FDA are asking yeah. That's exactly my point. I'm, I'm always concerned that the burden is too great on the patient. And especially in this, this cohort, burden is a different, different animal, isn't it? So that's, yeah. that's the, the fine line. That's a balancing act, isn't it? One of the things I did want to ask you about is, is item banks. To the, to the ignorant of us and me, to the ignorant of us, walk us through this idea that you can pick and choose and put, put, out, put an instrument together uh, because there's so much work involved. Can you, can you speak to that? I'm just genuinely curious. I think maybe just backing up a minute. So there's probably two two places where I think item banks are, are really interesting. So so one is in the rapid assembly of a new instrument. So maybe we want to yeah. develop an instrument for a cancer that we haven't got a standard instrument for. It enables us perhaps to do that a little more rapidly because all the questions, all the items in the item bank are already validated. We know that patients, cancer patients, understand and interpret those questions in the way intended so some of that work has already been done and i think the the other area where an item bank can can be valuable is in is in addressing this specificity question so you know again where where we've got instruments that perhaps aren't as specific aren't measuring those specific domains that the fda are asking for it might be that supplementing with a number of items from an item bank might get us to that place much quicker. And so, you know, we think about the EORTC and as we think about cancer, you know, we've got the promise item, but we also got the EORTC one. And um, I think EORTC has maybe a thousand items now. Uh, and these are all items that have been taken from their existing validated questionnaires or have been generated subsequently for to, to fill gaps that they think they need. And, and I think the way that they can be used is, is, is exactly as we said, just to, to, to rapidly assemble new questionnaires or new subscales or to supplement existing uh, right. instruments. Because the uh, overlap is always, is always an issue for me. Yeah. I think when we look at something like, if, we, if we're using the QRQC30 and then we're using a BR23, is it the breast cancer yeah. to go on top of that? You know, is there some overlap between those two? Probably not too much because they're, they're designed to go together. But if we're using that with a FACG or with something else or... Yeah, the, there is significant overlap in these scales, and that's a real problem when we want to think about patient burden and and, and want to make sure that we're we're just asking them enough questions to measure the things that we need to measure because these are people who, you know, not they're not you know they're, they're sick they're sick patients and they they, they don't want to be uh, overburdened with this. Can the item bank speak to that entirely? Can you for the specificity? Can you choose those items? Do the work to make sure that it doesn't increase a bias, all that good stuff that you would normally yeah. do. Can you use that on its own? Can that stand on its own? Well, I think so. I mean, I, I what I've seen done, and there's some, some really good work done, I think Jill Bell did published with her colleagues a really nice example of how to use the EORTC item bank. So they were looking at a number of fairly rare cancers for which there weren't any specific questionnaires developed. So they went off and did some additional concept elicitation work in patients to find out what were the most meaningful symptoms, et cetera, that they were experiencing. 
And then they did a mapping exercise. They went and looked at the QLQC30. Okay, well, actually, a lot of these map to that instrument already. So we have those covered. But there's a few here. There's like a dozen or so nerve symptoms which aren't covered by the QLQC30, but that are covered by the wider EORTC item bank. And so they could pull those in. And then suddenly they've got an instrument that's very now specific and tailored to that particular set of set of cancers. To be honest, that's the real power of this, isn't it? She didn't appreciate the power of that. Yeah, I think it, it, it gives us a head start. I mean, we've still got to do work. We've still got to do the concept elicitation. We've got to prove the content validity of what we've put together. And there's probably some work we've got to do at the back end around scoring and some psychometrics and things. But the actual item gener development uh, piece has already been done. If, we, if we're able to just pull from the library, and that's quite a big chunk of work that's, uh, that's already already done and ready for us to use so uh, it's a nice illustration i think of how to use this and, and also how to develop something that's specific to, to back to the fda guidance that's specific enough to meet their requirement and, and do it in quite a nice uh, simple manner like that well we'll have to sit and wait for the uh, final guidance from the fda yeah we will we will <laughs> yeah that's great yeah. and bill thank you so much for today bill barham is vp of product intelligence and Positioning at Signet Health. I'm Mark Wade. Thank you for joining us at uh, Life Sciences Talk. Thanks. Thank you, Mark.